Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, where we are making old school young again. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard. I am the R&OSR, and uh, this evening we are joined by the esteemed Greyhawk Grognard, Joseph Block. I am very happy to talk with him about the history of Greyhawk and several other things. Uh, but before we bring him on and get into that, I just want to remind everyone uh, to like, share, and subscribe if you enjoy what we're doing here on Rolling Bones. Uh, that's one of the best ways to support me is just to uh, you know hit that like button, share this with someone you love or someone you hate, and uh, you know subscribe because you need to know when I'm doing one of these shows or when I put up one of my short form videos. And of course, you can find me at all the social media down here on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. Twitter is where you can find all of my RPG threads that I do every day, Monday through Saturday. Uh, people really seem to enjoy those. In fact, some people have found the show through those. So if you're joining me off the back of one of my threads, welcome. This is Rolling Bones. This is what I do every Tuesday night. And of course, you can watch us on YouTube and on Twitch. We are also trying to get Rumble going, um, but you know. Rumble's mostly for politics. There's not a lot of role-playing over on Rumble. So, you know, what can we do? And uh, one last piece of uh, my own shilling before we uh, bring on Joe here. I do want to remind everyone that I have... Oh, that is not the right view. There we go. You want the t-shirts big and me small. That's the that's the way to do it. Uh, but I am on TeePublic. You can get your Rolling Bones t-shirts over on TeePublic. I am going to uh, go ahead and share this with everyone in the comments who uh, wants to buy a t-shirt from TeePublic. Uh, one of my friends actually sent me a picture of them in their brand spanking new bonehead t-shirt. It looked really nice. Uh, so those of you who are interested in wearing one of my three designs here, those are available for you on TeePublic at the link in chat. So without further ado, I want to go ahead and bring on our guest tonight. As I said, tonight we are talking to Joseph Block. He is the Greyhawk Grognard. He is one of the foremost experts on all things Greyhawk. Uh, he has a great YouTube channel, which you can find right about here, Greyhawk Grognard. And so, uh, Joe, welcome. Welcome to Rolling Bones. Well, hello. Hey, how you doing? doing? Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Oh, no problem at all. It's it's great to talk to you. Cool. So, um, this was. If anyone watched last week, you you know I was not uh, 
I did not have any show prepared for this week. So uh, Joe was actually very, very gracious in agreeing to do the show last minute. Um, <laughs> especially considering what you went through this weekend. Uh, but we won't yeah, dwell on that. Yeah, that, that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm always but happy to be anybody's plan B. <laughs> now you were plan A. I, I did not have anyone else planned on the show. You were you were my first call. So <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you called. And uh, Brian James in chat says he loves the map curtains. So yes, I get a lot of comments on the map curtains. I actually got them done at a, a online site, youcustomizeit.com. Uh, They'll basically put, you know, it's one of those places you upload a file and they'll print it on whatever you want. Um, mm -hmm. So you you can't, it's not like they're for sale any, any, anywhere. You have to go out and do it yourself because, you know, copyright. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this is not one of the normal questions that I ask first timers on Rolling Bones, but I do see the tree over your shoulder. So I do have to ask, uh, what is the name of your demon familiar? That would That would be Eclipse. Um, gotcha. viewers on my channel have seen him more than once. Don't know gotcha. if he's going to make it. Up. Oh no, he's, he's all sacked out over there. So <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got Ronan and Avery here in the house, but, uh, uh I, I closed the door because Ronan will jump on my keyboard and inevitably destroy the stream. <laughs> cool. But the, the way that we usually begin rolling bones is I've got a, couple questions everyone gets asked their first time so let's begin at the beginning uh joe how did you get into role-playing games i got into role-playing games from war games um back in the seven the mid 70s uh i was playing like avalon hill and spi war games you know hexes encounters and stuff mm -hmm. um and i was doing that for a couple of years and in the mid 70s that's when DD was really taken off in the gaming community and i kept hearing about it and hearing about it and i finally got a I got a copy of the white box, you know, the little brown books. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I taught myself how to play tactics too. I couldn't figure this out for the life of me. <laughs> so I, I like, I literally, I just, I'm, I'm 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. I couldn't figure this out. Mm -hmm. And so I, then I got a copy of Holmes basic, which is the blue box with the red dragon on it, yep. um, which is designed to be learned. And I, that was it. That's, that's what, that's where I, that was my entry drug. Um, from, from war games to homes and then the rest is history. Gotcha. So you had like the, the direct pipeline, the same pipeline that the, the earliest D and D players had. Yeah. I didn't get into miniatures until I was in college, but yeah, the, 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 the chits and, and maps, uh, war games, that was, that was, and still is, you can see behind me here, I've got mm -hmm. a, a, a few, uh, war games up there. So it's, gotcha. it's still, a, still a love. Gotcha. Now, I know this can be very difficult for a lot of people who dedicate significant amount of time to publishing books, doing, you know, YouTube videos on the subject, but we do these things because we love the game. We love the game because of our fond memories of playing the game. So if you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be? Fondest RPG memory. Okay. Um, it was actually not even a D&D &D game. Uh, this was a game of uh, uh, Chaosium did a Ringworld RPG gotcha. based on Larry Niven's novels. And we played a game of that uh, in college. And um, we never actually made it to the Ringworld. 
it was it was all just set in known space and there were Kazinti and there were puppeteers and one guy was playing an uplifted um, uh, a dolphin and it was just this spectacular game that was completely oblique from the point of the game. You know, it would be like playing Call of Cthulhu and you never meet Cthulhu because yep. um, you never go to the ring world and you're playing ring world. But right. it was yeah. so much fun. And we were on a planet called We Made It, which is also in the books. Um, and it was, it, was, it was just everybody was so into the known space books at the time. And we were all just it was because of that that it all just clicked so great. Hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, you, you mentioned never running into Cthulhu in Call of Cthulhu. You know, you, you never you, you never encounter like the big things from the world you're playing in when you play in one of those like shared world. You're never going to run a, against Darth Vader in a Star Wars game. And if you do, you better Good run. Because yeah. like exactly like this is the most powerful thing in your world. This is the reason why this world exists, essentially. Uh, <laughs> you guys aren't going to like, what are you going to do? Kill Cthulhu? Kill Darth Vader? <laughs> you get a uh, rule ring world? Like, what? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think made it so fun. It was because it was, you know, it was adjacent to the point of the game. Yeah. But it was, you could still use the game to play that. <laughs> so that's why I think we, I think that's why it stuck with me. Gotcha. Now there is one more question that everyone gets asked on Rolling Bones, but we're going to save that for the very end. Okay. Um, and instead, we are going to pivot and talk about your area of expertise, the, the thing that you are most known for, and that is uh, your knowledge of the world of Greyhawk. So, again, to, to take it back to the beginning, what was your first experience with the world of Greyhawk? My first experience with the world of Greyhawk was actually before Greyhawk was published. Okay. Um, because in the Dungeon Master's Guide, there are, uh, you know, the, the artifacts and, and relics that are that are in the DMG. And mm -hmm. a lot of them are explicitly linked to the world of Greyhawk. So you'd have like the, the machine of Loom the Mad, um, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I was picking up on little bits and pieces of this, uh, you know, by, because I was pouring through the DM's guide all the time. Mm -hmm. And so every homebrew campaign I did, I would have a barony of Loom. And I would have the planes of the pain ends and I would have the pale because they're mentioned specifically in these entries. So I was kind of like getting as much Greyhawk as I could before it was even published. Um, and then as soon as the folio came out, that was, I gravitated to that. I still did homebrew, a lot of homebrew campaigns, but I kept coming back to Greyhawk. Um, and I think it, the, the one thing that impresses me and still impresses me to this day about that folio is the the amount of stuff that Gygax is able to imply and inspire in so few words? It's mm -hmm. almost Hemingway-esque. What the the way he's able to to craft the wording so that you get the raw bones of the information that you need, but it also gives you just little bits and pieces here and there that lets your imagination just go wild. And and it's it's that room for development that I think really is what made the early Greyhawk campaign so attractive to so many DMs, despite the, because it wasn't the only option out there. There right. were other fantasy campaigns that you could use with D&D or ad &D. You know, there was the mm -hmm. Judges Guild campaign. Uh, there was Harn, um, uh, Iron Crown Enterprises had their stuff. You know, so there was stuff out there you could use. 
but there was something about Greyhawk. It gave you enough to get going, but it didn't delude you with detail. Yep. And it's funny you should mention those because I'll go ahead and drop this hint uh, right now. We'll be talking about one of those other alternate campaign settings uh, later this month when uh, Levi Combs comes on for the history of Arduin. But mm. for now, back in, in the realm of Greyhawk, um, <laughs> actually want to answer something from chat here. Uh, Rex Teal says you were picking up on the implied setting when you were reading uh, right. D&D. Well, I use the phrase implied setting a little differently than that because the um, I th to me, the implied setting derives from the, the actual rules, the mechanics of the rules. So, for example, it is implied in if you're playing AD&D, it is implied that there are druidic organizations that have 13 levels. And at the very top, there's only a few uh, members in there. It is implied that there are thieves guilds. Um, mm. It is implied that there are uh, uh, mechanisms for training magic users. Uh, to me, that's what I, when, when I say the word implied setting, those are the kinds of things I mean, because they're derived from the mechanics of the rules themselves. Yeah. The stuff that's in the artifacts and relics in the DM's guide, I don't, I don't say that, I don't see that as implied because that's explicit. That is explicit mm -hmm. setting material. Right. Um, it, they just hadn't published the setting yet. So it was, mm -hmm. it was implicit because it came from Gygax's obviously, but it wasn't, uh, you know, it, there, there wasn't any framework or, or um context uh to, to to plug it into yeah yeah and that's something that's kind of interesting about DD as a whole um and something that i think a lot of people miss especially from my generation you you look at the spell list and you see melf's acid arrow i right. know very <clears throat> few people who ask who is melf but they use that spell and again using that spell Calling it Melf's Acid Arrow implies there is a person named Melf who used that spell at one point. So, but like you said, that's yeah. You know, like all the Tenthers hand spells, Morden Canons, this and that. Yeah. yeah. And if you look at those spells, it's funny. Um, it's because the, the spells that are in the player's handbook and Unearthed Arcana, um, you know, they give you some indication of the of, of the the, the personality of the wizards who develop those spells, especially if you then look into the Greyhawk Adventures hardcover, which has a zillion spells all based on the different wizards. Um, mm. But it's, it's funny because if you look at them, it really tells you something about that wizard. So for example, um, uh, uh, the, the spells by, you know, uh, tensor with, with the hands and everything, uh, it, it tells you that he's not to use a pun, but he's very hands-on because yeah. he's also got tensors transformation, um, which turns you into a fighter. So this is a wizard who actually loves to mix it up in melee. And we actually, we get that confirmed later on in another product called the rogues gallery, mm -hmm. where it gives you little blurbs about, you know, some of the, some of the famous and uh, uh, PCs that were in the, the early campaigns. Um, but it's, it's funny if you, if you systematically look through all of Rary's spells or all of Tensor spells and all of Mordenkainen spells, um, they really do give you kind of insights into their characters, which I, mm. I, I find absolutely fascinating. And it, to me, it's a, it's a, a, an indicator that what we're seeing really is a glimpse into the earliest part of the game when they were actually still developing these spells as players yeah. for their characters. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's 
It's interesting to to look at Greyhawk as a whole because, like I was telling you before we jumped on, I started playing D anD D with Five E, and by Five E, Greyhawk, Greyhawk essentially doesn't exist anymore within uh, the the canon as it is of Dungeons and Dragons. Neither does my preferred setting of Dark Sun. It also pretty much doesn't exist, um, but. It's interesting that Greyhawk of all settings passed kind of out of canon the way it did yeah. because Greyhawk Greyhawk is to Gygax as Blackmore is to Arneson. It's like this was Gary's setting when Gary ran games even before D&D was called D&D. It was in and around Greyhawk and the 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 features and uh dungeons that that surrounded the city of greyhawk well it's also it's, it's interesting to remember that way back when you know back in the early 70s like you say before it was called dnd yeah. there were a number you know in a given group of players you know this person would have their big dungeon and this person would have their big dungeon and this person would have their big dungeon and there wasn't that great segregation between this is my campaign and these are your characters in my campaign. You would just take your character and, you know, tonight we're going to be over here and the same character two nights later is going to be over here in this other dungeon on this other world. They were very much, they were very looser about that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't really mind that much when, when characters would fl flip between, you know, you're in my campaign, now you're in my campaign, then you're in my campaign. Um, mm -hmm. Later on, that became much more, you know, lock, kind of locked down. Yeah. Uh, but in the early wild days, and you get a lot of this if you read some of the earliest um, uh, 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 fanzines out there, like Alarums and Excursions. Mm -hmm. um, you, you'll, it's really fascinating to see, to get that glimpse of just what the game was like and how different it was than the game we play today. Even those of us who play first edition or basic, we play differently than they played in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting, kind of the, the looseness in which players would essentially jump from world to world. I, I think that says a lot about kind of the fantasy that a lot of these people were consuming, because I mean, like at this point, you're, you're still dealing directly with people who were influenced by Appendix N. So Fawford and the Grey Mouser travel pretty freely between Lankmar and the real world because Fritz Leiber was having to reconcile two different sets of stories that he wrote with each other. So you right. have kind of this inherent plane hopping, um, kind of like tossed salad approach to fantasy where one week we're going to be delving through this very fantasy focused dungeon. And the next week we're going to stumble upon a crashed UFO somewhere mm. out in the, in the jungle. That's just the way that the game was played at that right, point. Exactly. And you see that, you know, some of the other fantasy out there, Roger Zelazny with the Amber mm. books and, um, you know, uh, 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 Elric, you know, that, that sort of oh, thing. Yeah. They, they, they would, you're right. They were just, you know, they were very loosey goosey when it came to the, uh, to the set. And I think that did translate over into into uh, a lot of the way the game was played. Yep. So as far as what kind of drew you to Greyhawk and, and what really kind of keeps you 
in in Greyhawk as far as it being a favorite setting of yours. What is it specifically about Greyhawk that really speaks to you as a gamer? Well, for me, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's obviously a nostalgic component to it for me. You know, this is the, this is the setting I've been using literally since it was published um, in in 1980. So, you know, I, it's there's, I'm not going to lie. That's a, that's going to be a part of it. But I, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier about it being um, not so much lore heavy, at least in the early days, um, and much more inspirational. Uh, yeah. You know, you would get a line or two in a in a paragraph about a country, and that would be enough to just kind of set your creative juices going and mm -hmm. and and take off on stuff. Um, you know, obviously over the years, as more stuff's been published, and you know they came out with box sets and more box sets and and stuff like that, it's a lot of the cracks have been filled in. But even today, there is vast amounts of area of the World of Greyhawk campaign that has never been um, described in any detail. Uh, you know, so even now there is enormous opportunities for DMs to just turn, make it their own. And that's something that you don't really get in another setting like Forgotten Realms. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the quintessential. We have covered every freaking yeah. detail. And, you know, there's like 9,000 books, novels, and and there's, the, you know, a, a zillion uh, modules, uh, Modules, by the way, for the for the youngins among you, that's what we used to call adventures. <laughs> adventures were modules back in the mm -hmm. day. So just so you, you know, I don't want to lose anybody. Um, I mean, I, I use the term module all the time on the show. So <laughs> we're good. I do, and I get I, sometimes I'll just use it and like I'll get a blank stare from somebody. It's like, what the heck are you talking about? It's like, yeah, it's an adventure. Um, but you know, something I've forgotten else is just too much um, detail. And you know, plus you got uh, endless articles in dragon magazine and all you know it just ends up really weighing down the dm and if i tried to dm forgotten realms i couldn't do it i would be paralyzed with fear that i would be violating canon somewhere yeah whereas greyhawk is light enough that you can't you know there, there's there are places that that's not even a risk like the mm -hmm. entire almost all of k-land um this uh uh here uh, that's, you know, pretty well, almost completely not developed, um, mm -hmm. in terms of being covered by a, a, a guidebook or, or a module or anything like that. Um, you know, so there's lots and lots of opportunity in Greyhawk, even, um, even 43 years later. And that's what I love about it is that you can still make it your own. And that doesn't even mention the fact that we're only seeing a small part of the world in the finesse. There is an entire rest of the continent of orc that is it remains largely unexplored there are some exceptions and we can get into that if you want to um and i'm slowly working my way on my blog trying to map out and detail those areas like the rest of the backloonish lands in the northwest and then on the far side of the sea of dust there's a place called zahindia which is kind of a hindu-esque uh, kind of setting, and I've I've got mm -hmm. maps and a guidebook and monsters and spells and classes and stuff for it uh, right. on my blog. But um, you know, but there's there's vast opportunities to uh, if you're if you're if you want to be creative, you can still be creative within the boundaries of Rayhawk. Yeah, yeah, and it, it seems to me very much that uh, Greyhawk was designed and remained truly a setting it was like you said here's enough details to kind of get you started mm 
to know essentially what's going on or, or what there is to do or who previously was a power player within Greyhawk, but the rest of it is open for you, the GM, and you, the players, to fill out. Whereas Forgotten Realms very quickly became uh, not just a player setting or a player-driven setting, but a setting that like novels were set in. So exactly. in, in Greyhawk, you don't have to worry about, well, if this is so important, where's Dritz Duarden? Because <laughs> uh, there's not like a Dritz equivalent in Greyhawk, whereas Forgotten Realms has been so thoroughly mapped out that, uh, you know, you basically pick a time period and the GM goes, all right, here is your textbook on what's going on in the world. And it's funny you should mention time periods because in, in Greyhawk, they famously advanced the timeline. And a lot of fans, even to this day, don't like the idea that they advance the timeline. They kind of want it to be like Harn, where everything is frozen in time on a specific date. Um, and just and, and just everything that, that happens after that happens because the players and the GM want it to happen. Uh, right. But they did, you know, they had the Greyhawk Wars, and then they had the From the Ashes, and then they had the, um, the, the Adventure Begins, you know, so they kind of... But even with all that, it only went forward 25 years. It started in CY 576, and the last published book that I'm aware of was CY 591. So even all that stuff only took 25 years of in-game time. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like you mentioned with the realms, it's gone like centuries. Yeah, and there's been upheavals to the you know the the maps. And stuff. It, it's a it's a different scale in mm -hmm. in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's sorry. Let me let me change course here. Uh, I had a point, but then I lost it, so I'm just going to change course. Um, <laughs> when it comes to a lot of these settings, generally, you know, people who are into certain D and D settings, they have in their mind an era where, like, this was the peak. This is where all the best material, or a lot of the best material from the setting comes from. So if you had to pick kind of a peak period for Greyhawk, where this is where all the best work was done with the Greyhawk setting, where would that be? Uh, well, that, that would be the, the, the folio slash gold box era. Uh, gotcha. The first, the first stuff that was published uh, in, in game time, it was the, um, it was supposedly published in CY 576. And then the, the, uh, the setting kind of took place in 577, 578. Um, that's when Gygax wrote uh, a series of Dragon Magazine articles saying, you know, this is these are the events in the world of Greyhawk. So they had wars over here and this army's moving here and this happened in this place. Um, and that's when all of the classic modules are set. So, gotcha. uh, you know, Village of Homlet, the Giants, the, the Drow and, um, uh, you know, the Slavers, all that kind of stuff place in that one section that immediately after the gold box is supposedly published. And that I think is, is the best era to, to run a Gary Hawk game in. There are advantages to running it in other eras if you want to run a particular kind of game. But right. overall, I would go with that earliest 576 uh, era myself. Hmm. Gotcha. So I, again, I, in my head, I'm drawing parallels to Dark Sun, which is my favorite D&D &D setting where kind of the, the best era to run dark sun in because you have the most material to work with is really like 1991 to 1993 you have the the original run of dark sun 
uh, modules and box sets where there's enough context for players to have something to really sink their teeth into, but you don't get into some of the craziness that happens kind of after the conclusion of the Prism Pentad books. So it's funny that because in Greyhawk, it's actually the opposite because you yep. they, they have more material for the from the ashes era, which is mm -hmm. 585. Um, that's when the uh, you get things like the Marklands and I use the evil. You know, you have these source books for big, huge regions of the, the Flamesse that detail things. Um, but to my mind, it is precisely that level of detail that I, I, I kind of pull away from. I would rather have less detail and more of an evocative framework than to yeah. have that level of detail, which is not to say it's a bad thing. Um, mm. It might, you know, it it might it, you could easily make an argument that having a little more detail is a good thing. Um, but um, but it's just it's funny that you should mention that because you're mm. you're judging it on I have more more stuff to work with, and mm. I'm going the opposite. I'm saying well I. I I, I don't want that much stuff to work with. So it's, it's, I just thought it was an interesting parallel. Yeah. And it's, it really does kind of get down to, I, I guess like how people like to play the game. And it sounds like with Greyhawk, a lot of the best material is again, here's a small amount of detail. And now you guys are going to go out and kind of make the difference in this world because you're the player characters, you're the important one. So your choices are going to shape kind of how the world goes forward from here instead of, well, you have this going on over here and this going on over here. And, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, what you guys are doing could be important, but there's also all this other stuff going on. Well, it's interesting too, because a lot of, especially in that early era, a lot of stuff about Greyhawk is show rather than tell. Mm -hmm. um, because we didn't have, you know, after they published the box set or the folio, we didn't have source books. Right. All we had were adventure modules. And mm -hmm. that's how they kind of grew the settings. Uh, little chunk by little chunk by little chunk. So you have something like White Plume Mountain or Hidden Shrine of Tomoakon, um, mm -hmm. which adds details to the setting. Or Ghost Tower of Inverness is a, is a great example. It adds details to the setting um, from like the introductory material and the, you know what's in the dungeon and stuff. Um, but it's it's added specifically because it's relevant to that adventure. It's not yeah. like, oh, we want to do a source book on the County of Ernst. It's mm -hmm. just we need to know these couple of details about the County of Ernst to make to, to give you some some information about the dungeon you're going to. Yeah. And I like that approach of, of showing rather than telling. It's not just a big info dump. Mm -hmm. It's you get targeted stuff specifically relevant to an adventure. Yeah. And I, I love that way of approaching it. Mm. Yeah, and and that's a very that's a very good that's a very utilitarian way to approach because it's more likely that contextually relevant information is going to stand out rather than here's my essay on the history of this region. Uh, it, it's going to be more okay. You know, this is important to this adventure, so I need to know it rather than oh my god, there's fifty centuries of history here that I have to go through. Right. So I. I do think that's a very smart way to go about kind of filling out a setting is just like, these are the details that you need right now. And it's funny because when they first published Forgotten Realms, they promised that one of the kingdoms, they would never, they would never detail, <laughs> right? That was, 
the, you, they even said in the gray box, you know, you know this is the place that you, that you can turn into your own. I think it was Sembia, in the, I, if, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, and sure enough, in a couple of years, boom, here's a Sembia source book. And they just <laughs> got to stomp all over everything. So they, kinda, yeah. they did that bait and switch on the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it, it, the DMs want that. DMs, I, in, at least the, the, the DMs that I'm, you know, the, the kind of DMs that I'm familiar with want that. Want that freedom to, to create rather than just running a published module. And I think that's one of the bigger differences you see in modern 5e gamers yeah. compared to OSR type gamers is that the, the 5e gamers are willing to, um, you know, are more likely, I should say, to run the published stuff and these big adventure paths that, that are going to take them a year to, or, or whatever to finish um, mm. rather than sitting down and homebrewing or, you know, heaven forbid, um, uh, 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 improving a an, an adventure, right? Yeah, there. And and I say this as someone who's coming, like who who comes out of the five E crowd uh, originally. There's almost zero reliance on random tables or exploration leading to essentially an emergent adventure. It's all you know. What do you have planned for us? Where where is this going? What where do we hop on the conveyor belt here to take us right. to the because you know, sandboxes have gone out of style, right? Um, yeah. And and that that really is the epitome of old school play. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it you know it doesn't matter what edition you're playing, you can do a sandbox with five e. I've yeah. done it, but people don't like to play that way now. They want a story that is already you know at least the broad guide rails of which are 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 known already to the gm and mm-hmm. and they want to see how the story goes i'm much more used to a sandbox um environment which as you just said the story is emergent from the actions of the players right it's not me saying oh the 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 story of our campaign is going to be you're going to rescue prince thrommel from the temple of elemental evil mm-hmm. it's you're exploring. You're, you're exploring the temple because that's because it's there, and you just happen to run across Prince Thrommel. Mm-hmm. and you know it's it's a very different way of approaching a game, uh, and it's not mechanically driven. It's 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 a mindset, right? And and this is where kind of I pick up the banner of the sandbox game, and and try to take it to people like myself who got burned out on <clears throat> fifth edition. And say, look, you know, the reason DM burnout is a thing is because you think you have to be a fantasy author. Right. You don't. All you have to do is give kind of a big enough space for your players to go get themselves into trouble. And that's where you're going to get your your narrative from is what trouble do your players inevitably find themselves in? Because, you know, your players, they're not going to be able to help themselves. <laughs> And, and I, I don't want to come across like I'm bashing 5th edition because I like 5th edition. I've played it. I've DM'd mm-hmm. it. Uh, I think it works best as a short-term game. Like, I'll play it at a convention or something like that. I yeah. don't think it scales up to a long-term campaign very well. Um, and it's also, people got to remember, the the idea of, of we're going to play a defined story didn't start with 5th edition or even 4th. It started with 1st, Dragonlance. Yeah. It started with Dragonlance, which was a AD&D thing. 
Mm. And, you know, so, you know, I don't want, you know, people shouldn't automatically equate, well, everything in AD&D was a sandbox, not by a long shot. Right. Um, yeah. It just happens to be, it was so wildly successful. That was the model that everybody took from the, from then on because they all wanted to be on the New York Times bestseller list with novels because they made a lot more money than adventure modules. Right. Now that kind of brings me to uh, my, my next question about Greyhawk. Once Dragonlance comes out, you see a definite shift in the way that Watsi or not Watsi. TSR at the time publishes material. It's a lot more focused on storylines. It's more, you know, how do we replicate Dragonlance? How do we, you know, and this is where Forgotten Realms kind of shifts into what Forgotten Realms has become. This is where Ari Salvatore releases his novels. Do you think that Greyhawk ended up being kind of a victim of that shift in mindset? I don't think it was that. I think that happened concurrently with okay. with with Greyhawk being shunted aside. Hmm. But it wasn't because of the shift in tone. Remember, that happened at exactly the same time that Gary Gygax was forced out of TSR. Right. And it was a very um, acrimonious parting. There were lawsuits. Lorraine Williams was by all accounts really out to just make it personal and wanted to get rid of Greyhawk just to hurt Gary Gygax. Um, and that's when they started casting about for a new setting. Um, and that was Forgotten Realms. Mm. And because, you know, because over the years in Dragon Magazine, Ed Greenwood had been, you know, published, you know, sending them all these, these articles with this incredible detail. And somebody asked him, "Is are you just making this up as you do it? Or do you have all this? He's like, I have all in the boxes over here. Uh, so, you know, they, you know, they bought it from him, um, for the price of like a new computer and <laughs> um you know so but but it, i think the the downgrading of greyhawk was much more a factor of we want to make a, a clean break from gary gygax tsr did mm -hmm. than it was in a style of play um i think if it hadn't been as personal as it was we would have seen that style applied to greyhawk i think we gotcha. would have seen a, you know, those kinds of adventure paths specifically designed, you know, the big, big grand story arcs and things. I think we would have seen that in Greyhawk anyway, because mm -hmm. the books make all the money. The novels right. make all the money. Um, and, you know, especially by that time, they were they were the biggest fantasy publisher in the world. Mm -hmm. And they had they dominated the New York Times bestseller lists because they had all of these Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms and, and those kinds of novels. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm. That that does make sense, and and I figured, I figured that Gary leaving in the or being forced out in the way that he was forced out might have had something to do with it as well. But the the interesting thing is, Greyhawk does continue past even Gary's exit. Um. So, I guess that leads into my next question. What are your thoughts on? kind of the post-Gygax Greyhawk that comes out in second edition and then even in, into third edition. What, what are your thoughts on the Greyhawk stuff that comes once that split occurs? Well, that's where, you know, I was talking about the the From the Ashes era, you know, that 585 yeah. era. That, that's that. Um, hmm. That is them trying to take the, Grey, the Greyhawk campaign into a different 
direction. Yeah. Um, you know, that's when they have all the wars and things are, you know, the, the kingdoms are, are knocked down and, and, and things like that. They want to turn it into a much darker, grittier kind of uh, setting. And I think that was another attempt to to change the the setting to make it less Gygaxian uh, deliberately. Mm -hmm. um, that said, there's a lot of good material that came out during that. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it, at the time, I didn't think too highly of it, but over the years, it's really grown on. Um, the, the, from the ashes stuff, the, you know, the, like I said, I use the evil Marklands, um, you know, th things like that. Um, I think they, they kind of got repetitive when Vecna was in every other module for a while. Um, it was like, can, can't we get another, another villain, please? I'm begging. It was either Vecna or Tharsdun every, every time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's do something different guys. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, some some really good stuff came out of there, uh, out of that era. Um, but like I say, it, it does feel different. Mm -hmm. And I think it feels different because it doesn't have a it doesn't have that Gygaxian flair. Um, like mm -hmm. I, I alluded to at the beginning, where he can just in, a, in two sentences, he can just give you such inspiration and you just go off on your own. This was much more of a uh, of a. I don't want to say workmanlike because that comes across as an insult, but it's much more what we might today call standard. Yeah. Rather than, you know, high guy Gaxian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you hit on an interesting point there that I think a lot of people are starting to understand as they're um, re-examining Gygax. For the longest time, it seemed like the perception of Gygax was that his work was very kind of scattered and there was a lot of non sequiturs in his writing. But I think what a lot of people are starting to come around on is Gygax made these connections in his head and he expected you to make these connections as well. His work is very grounded in uh, historical reference and reference yeah. to uh, weird fantasy and sword and sorcery fantasy. So if you understand history you understand military history in particular, and you are somewhat versed in what weird fantasy or sword and sorcery fantasy is like, you begin to put these pieces together and you can see ultimately what Gygax was hinting at. Right. And I think you made a very good point just then is that he, it, it, it was all, it makes sense to him. Yes. And if you read his work very carefully, you can put together those, those connections. Mm hmm you, you, you know, once you once you immerse yourself enough in both Gygax's work and the works of authors he was reading, you know, the whole Appendix N thing. Yeah. Once you have that, you know, the, the your own connections will start to to spark like that mm -hmm. and you'll you'll be able to follow along. And, and I would also argue that Gygax wrote. Gygax expected you to read and reread and kind of dwell on the words that he wrote and really study them more so than just read once and understand. He wasn't writing instruction manuals necessarily. He was writing almost, he almost wrote in like the way that historians write, like, like the way that Josephus wrote his history of first century Israel. That's kind of the way that Gygax wrote. And he expected people to take more of a, scholarly approach to understanding the rules and the settings of Dungeons and Dragons. 
Well, it, you, you see this especially in there's, – there's a couple of adventures uh, that, that he wrote where you need to read every single line yeah. in order to really figure out what's going on. Uh, Vault of the Drow is a perfect example. Um, in fact, the, the people who wrote the sequel to Vault of the Drow, Queen of the Demon Weapons, had obviously not done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because their sequel had nothing to do with the plot that was developed in the first six adventures in the, in the series. Mm -hmm. um, because if you read it carefully, you'll know that Eclavdra and the, the, the Drow who are behind the giant raids are worship are, are rebels who have left Lolf, the Spider Queen, mm -hmm. and are worshiping this elder elemental god, which is all tentacles and things. And and yet, when you get to the <laughs> final adventure, you're going after Lolf, and there's no mention of the elder elemental god. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Just because. And and in fact, that that annoyed me so much. I actually wrote my own, um, mm -hmm. which I called Web of Souls, which is available for free on my blog, greyhawkgrognard.com. Um, but it's interesting because there's a lot of uh, of details about not only about just the plot uh, that is just they're hidden little bits and places all throughout the Giants and the Drow series. Um, mm -hmm. But he he does the same thing in. Um, in a lot of his, uh, in, in something like um, the, the the forgotten uh, temple of Tharsden, yeah, where there's a lot of of detail, but it's not just all laid out in a big introduction. You have right. to carefully pick around and 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 see why does this apparition look like a bunch of snakehead tentacle things? Oh, that's why because it's over explained over here. Mm -hmm. But you really do need to read through them. Uh, very, very carefully to make to, to get all those connections, or else you won't get everything you uh, you can out of them. Um, and and uh, Temple of Elemental Evil is is much the same way, although um, that suffers because it had two authors. You know, uh, Gygax just kind of handed over a whole sheaf of notes to Frank Metzer, and and some things got lost in that translation. Hmm. But it's 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 still much the same thing, and you know he'll ex he'll expect that you know what porphyry looks like. It's kind of stone, mm -hmm. and if you don't know that porphyry is a, is a particular color and carnelian is another color, and then when you see a checkerboard of porphyry and carnelian in a room, those colors are significant because you've already seen them in Vault of the Drill. It's it's just you you really have to know what it is you're reading in order to get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. Scott, I am not going to correct my guest here. Come on now. What did I do? What did I do wrong? He does. I, I think Scott takes issue with you saying Dro instead of drow. It's Dro and I don't care and I'm not changed. <laughs> See, I, I'm from the South, so I say drow, but... Actually... Um, according to the, the pronunciation guide that they published in Dragon Magazine, either is correct. So fair enough. It's <laughs> all right. I, I get on people who call Ra's al Ghul Ra's al Ghul. So yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I get, I get those comments every time I talk about the draft. Hmm. I also, I also get mad at people who call him, uh, or, or call the family, the Harkonnen family instead of Harkonnen. Harkonnen. Yes. Although for the for the longest time, because I had only read it, uh, I didn't know how to uh, how to pronounce Atreides. 
mm-hmm. um, until I realized that in one of the in in one of Gurney Halleck's songs, he actually rhymes it with the word ladies. That's the only reason I was able to figure out how to pronounce that dumb name. And even now, people who are experts in the books call it Atreides. Mm. It's just that. Anyway. Now, a legacy game mastering, you you mean uh, you don't like it when people say Drizzit? <laughs> That's one of those where I'm like, look, I understand that it's hard to pronounce, but where are you getting that extra I sound? Yeah, exactly. But no, um, getting back into the world of Greyhawk here, uh, one of kind of the last, I guess, the last gasps of Greyhawk actually comes far later than I thought it did because uh, I was not gaming at this time. Uh, but this is Living Greyhawk, uh, which comes about in, in 2000. And carries all the way through to 2008. Now we had an earlier comment about Living Greyhawk, yeah, I saw Kevin that. King, um, in which he says that it should be considered bloat if you consider it canon at all. Um, so I guess what are your thoughts on this kind of late stage? Uh, I guess attempt to keep Greyhawk alive with Living Greyhawk. I'm going to get into a lot of trouble with this, and I, I keep I keep promising that I'm going to do a whole video about Living Greyhawk on my channel and why I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a fan of Living Greyhawk. I was, uh, not, I, I didn't actively participate in it. I, um, and and you know I think the the comment was was one of the reasons I don't like it is because it was bloat. Um, mm-hmm. They they took the Forgotten Realms approach to Greyhawk with the Living Greyhawk Gazetteer, uh, where everything has to have multiple page histories and all this stuff that nobody's ever heard of before. Um, they, they tend to not pay close enough attention, in my opinion, to canon uh, that had been previously published, especially when you get into the, into the adventures, um, because... There were they, they they had such a constant need to have adventures. Mm-hmm. They couldn't really apply the, the level of quality control on those adventures that you could get at you know in in regular publishing. Yeah, and I think because you had that real varying in terms of quality, I think that really hurt it in my, at least to me. Um, and I know a lot of people love it. A lot of people had you know that's their best experiences. They have wonderful memories of it and i'm i i I get it i understand um i just i i don't i I don't think it feels like greyhawk Mm -hmm. um and you know it 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 feels like a thousand people got together and all mushed together their their homebrew campaign greyhawks right Um, and much as i love other greyhawk fans i I don't need to hear about what happened in your campaign where your characters killed Ayus or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I get the, um, I get the feeling when I read living Greyhawk material with, with notable exceptions. There, there are some really fantastic living Greyhawk uh, adventures out there, um, but they are the minority. And mm-hmm. I, I just get the feeling that they were, they were so pressed. They had to have living Greyhawk material for events and events and events and events that yep. they were just throwing stuff out there um, without, without really vetting it. 
And, and I think it showed. Yeah. And it seems to me, again, just from the conversation that we've had, it seems to me like kind of the appeal of Greyhawk is almost a lost history. Like there's, there is a history here, but it's not overly explored. It's not overly explained. And it's very contextual. It's very much in how you are interacting with these things. That's where you get some of this history. It's a lot of having to uncover it. Whereas right. with living Greyhawk and, you know, with forgotten realms and even with dark sun to an extent, um, it's a lot of, here's the history. Here's your history book. Here's your, your tome of all that is known about this world. And instead of leaving it up to imagination or leaving it up to discovery, it's we're going to explain this to you. Right. And I, I have a perfect example of this. Um, I use the evil demigod who rules, you know, part of, of, of the Flaness. Um, his mother is Igwilv, the witch queen. And she features in uh, one of the modules, the Lost Caverns of Sajkonf. And obviously I use is, you know, uh, there, there's information about him in the, uh, in the gold box and in some of the modules here or there, you know, but there's no real comprehensive thing. So what I did was I, I, I set out to kind of compare the timelines between the two. And you have to actually go to like three or four different sources. And once you do that, you realize that Ayuz was expanding his empire while his mother was alive. But as soon as she went away, his advances stop. So it's not said anywhere. But he was relying on her to help him expand his realm hmm. because the expansion stops as soon as she disappears. And you, but it, it is completely inferred. There's, you will not find that spelled out anywhere. Hmm. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And I, 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 I can't help but wonder what other hidden things like that are still out there in, the, in those older modules. That are just waiting to be found. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think Rex Teal here makes a, a good point in chat. If everything's already been done, discovered, and explored, what's the point of adventuring? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is which takes us back to the showing rather than telling uh, yeah. approach that they had in the early days. Um, you know, it was the these were the first. You know, a lot of it also had to do with the fact that they were trailblazing at the time, you know, right. There weren't, you know, we didn't have 40 years of examples of, of dungeons. Mm -hmm. um, but that's actually, I'm going to, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Um, that's actually a really good point about examples and the original Greyhawk campaign. Cause obviously the original Greyhawk campaign was focused almost exclusively on the dungeons beneath castle Greyhawk. Mm -hmm. And if you read the rules in the player's handbook and the DMs guide, and you look at some of the, the mechanical aspects of things like, um, you know, uh, potion of treasure finding or gnomes and dwarves being able to tell the direction and how deep they are underground by licking the wall or whatever they do. Um, those are those are um, or, or, or being able to discover new construction. That's always a great one. Hmm. Those are rules that only make sense in a mega dungeon. Right. They have no applicability outside of a huge mega dungeon complex where new levels are being added and there are uh, sloping passages and elevator rooms. They are useless without that 
context. Mm-hmm. But in the earliest days of D&D, what is the one kind of dungeon they never published? A big mega dungeon. Everything <laughs> right. were these one-shot tournament modules. Mm-hmm. So we're so there's this dichotomy. If you're looking, if you're if you're just picking it up at the time in the 70s or the 80s, and you're looking at the, the player's handbook, which is talking about having a caller and a, and a and you know to get your party to the dun- to the part of the dungeon where you, you where you left off, or you set goals. Your, your goal is to find the next uh, the stairway down to the next level of the dungeon. Mm-hmm. But the examples they're giving are dungeons that have one or two levels. It doesn't make any sense, and I think I think the trajectory of the game would have been a lot different if we had had an example of Castle Greyhawk or El Raja Key or Mari Castle, whatever, you know, if we had had a big 12 level dungeon like that as an example to guide us in the, in uh, those of us who weren't learning from people who learn from people who learn from Gygax, right. Which happened a lot, especially across college campuses in the, in the mid seventies. Um, and again, just go, go back to alarms and excursions, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if they had published something like that for the vast majority of us who were learning it from the from the books rather than from other people who knew how to play, I think it would have gone very differently. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now to uh, to make kind of a hard pivot here, um, just at the very end of our, our time here this evening. On your YouTube channel, you actually put out what I think is one of the uh, the better videos on the subject because it's, it's very go. succinct. <laughs> it's to the point. Uh, there, there's little in the way of editorializing, although there's plenty to editorialize about with this topic. But your video, Goodbye Watsy, yeah. where you basically just went over a year's worth of here's all the reasons why I'm not buying any more Watsy products. So, uh, you know see you guys I, I like i have to applaud you for that it, I, I really think it was a, a good quality video that you made there well thank you I, I, and i gotta say i am i have no idea why it went viral it, <laughs> it is it has gotten literally thousands of times more hits than some of my other videos it's gotten forty five thousand views which for mm-hmm. me is just like un, unbelievable and it's got like a thousand comments um and i don't know why uh, I, I'm not saying anything that other people haven't said, but I think it's because I don't normally do that on my channel. Right. I normally keep it to, you know, very pedantic, mm. you know, here, we're going to talk about Voluna today in the world of Greyhawk. Um, mm. But I just, the the number of times that, that they can just show their contempt for their customers. Mm. I, and that's, that's the word. I mean, they have demonstrated half a dozen times at least in the last six months, they don't, they, we're just an impediment to them getting our money. Right. That, that you know, they, it's like, how dare, how dare those peasants keep our money in their wallet? <laughs> that's, that's all there is. That's all there mm-hmm. is to them. I mean, I mean, I, I'm not going to go through all the litany. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've heard. Oh yeah. You, I'm sure your audience knows about, you know, all the stuff and, you know, taking artists, names off of off of posters and mm-hmm. um buying their own ethics award and just <laughs> it's just you can't make it up I mean, and and the, the whole the whole pinkerton thing is just surreal 
the the Pinkerton thing, I got a solid like three days of decent jokes out of the Pinkerton <laughs> situation because I I wrote a like 15 page history paper about the Pinkertons when I was in college. <laughs> and so I'm just like, I will never have any other chance to make these jokes again. And so I was just like posting pictures of James McParlin saying, Watsy's chief of security, my top suspects are the Molly Maguires and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm literally waiting them for, the, for them to buy an orphanage and kick the kids out. Yeah. At this point. I mean, other than tying a woman to a railroad track, I can't think of anything else that they, they that's left for them at this point. Well, one of the first things I did when I saw that uh, news was I jumped in uh, the Basic Experts Gilded server and I said, has anyone checked to see if Watsy has tied Ginny D to a railroad track? <laughs> oh, my God. I wish I thought of that. That's perfect. Uh, <laughs> but, my God. And I, I, I made a couple memes about it myself. And, and mm -hmm. one of them was, um, you know, not to be outdone, Game Shop hires the Bow Street Runners to uh, track down people <laughs> or, who are, who are getting letting out uh, uh, Space Marines early. It's just... <laughs> Oh my God, it's on. You just can't get get. It, it's impossible to think that this is a professionally managed company at this point. Yeah. I mean, um, it's like they're it's like they're deliberately trying to to poison their own well. And mm -hmm. I've I've seen that advance too. That maybe this is deliberate because they want to sell because Hasbro wants to sell off Watsy. Um, so they're doing this on purpose just to lower the price. I who the hell knows, um. But I mean, but I, I honestly think that they are very certain that people who play the game using books are not their audience anymore. And they right. are firmly convinced they will make a lot more money with a uh, an online VTT based game than they will with people buying dead trees. And mm -hmm. um, they are they in their calculus, I really believe they think they can afford to lose every current customer they have because they're going to make more off of these new customers they're going to get on their VTT. Right. I honestly think that's, that's their, their mindset at this point. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing with Hasbro, and I don't even know if there is any strategy to it. Hasbro is not a very intelligently run company to begin with. They're, they're a company that was extremely successful at manufacturing, um, plastic toys which you know people got a lot of enjoyment out of people love gi joe people love transformers but kids don't buy toys anymore so this company that has built an empire on physical plastic toys now is essentially kind of without their their thing that previously made the money so yet yeah you can sell kind of upscale higher end toys to the adults who remember playing with GI Joes. You can sell them fancier GI Joes now, but there's only so much money to be gained from that. A lot of people who played with GI Joes just don't even think about wanting to own GI Joes sure. anymore. So, you know, they, they tried the movies, the Transformers movies were somewhat successful for a little bit. Uh, GI Joe never made it off the ground as a, a movie property, which is With maybe like the they, 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 it could have been, it could yeah. have, if they had just given it a little more love 
and mm-hmm. one more pass in the in the writing. It would have been really great. Oh yeah. Um, but I think the I think honestly think the um, the Transformers movies are making something of a comeback because mm-hmm. with Bumblebee they brought the designs back closer to being Gen One. Yep. And that's what I knew Transformers. You know that that those were Transformers when I was in college. I mm-hmm. had all the Decepticons and my roommate had all the Autobots. <laughs> and those are the Transformers I remember. Yeah, and they brought them back, and the new trailer for the new movie um, with the uh, with the the animals, the uh, what do you call it, the 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 new one, um, where they're the, the the designs. They have a lot of stuff from the movie, you know, mm-hmm. Transformers the animated movie with Unicron, and they have RC, and they have the Predacons, and th- so I think that's going to. I think that's breathing a little more life into it because it's making it more approachable to people like me. Yeah. Who remember them looking more like they're starting to look now. Mm -hmm. But even then that's not enough to support an entire company. Yeah. Maliki, you make a good point about a GI Joe movie at the very least. Larry Hama should have been like a creative consultant on that movie. Uh, But you know, they just decided to, I don't even know how to describe what they did with those GI Joe movies. They they're not good. <laughs> no, but... no, they're not. They had some good moments. Yeah. Um, but they're not. I think it's because they're not rewatchable. Mm. Um, I tr- you know I I watched the first one in the theater and I kind of liked it. You know the the best part for me was they they had that homage to the um, to the opening credits of the GI Joe movie. You know mm-hmm. remember where they're. Um, they're they're attacking the Statue of Liberty, and they're all the balloons are coming up, and the Cobra guys are coming down in the in yeah. the in the parachutes. One of the fight scenes in the GI Joe movie had all these balloons coming up, mm. and and it is like, oh, they're doing they're doing an homage to to the GI Joe movie with Cobra Law. Um, but that you know, yeah, it was kind of meh, and they mm. everything was Storm Shadow, and I don't care, and yeah, I would much rather have seen Zaymot and Tomax. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they just, it's, it's blunder after blunder. They, they keep trying to be something else. They keep trying to pivot into something new. And now with, I guess like the way that the VTT is going and, and the way they're kind of shifting even magic to kind of a digital first format. Uh, I, I guess they're trying to be, video game developers now. Of... And didn't they just bump up the, the price of magic cards 50% or something? I, yeah. I, I headline. Mm-hmm. It's like, guys, what is it, it's literally like they're trying to sabotage themselves. And, you know, for, for D and D for the, for the D and D side, they don't go to cons. Right. Is it any wonder they don't know their audience? Mm-hmm. Even when they bring them in for that cockamamie uh, creator summit, they couldn't get that right. Right. I mean, you wouldn't have to do that if you were going to Gen Con and if you were going to Gary Con or or, or Origins or anything. You wouldn't mm-hmm. need to, to bring them in special. You'd be talking to them, you know, all weekend long. Right. Uh, but they, I don't know. I, I, I just, I can't, I can't figure it. And, but you know what? It's not my problem anymore because right. I'm not buying any more of their books. Even if they have Greyhawk, Greyhawk stuff in them, I'm going to buy them used. Um, I'm not going to buy any more figures. I'm not going to. I'm 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 out of Wizards of the Coast. 
Hmm. And I don't care. They could publish a, a Greyhawk um, a box set at this point. I'm, I'm, I'm off the bandwagon. I'm off their bandwagon. Yeah. I will, like I say, I'll buy a used copy for the lore. Um, I have 900 pages of fifth edition Greyhawk stuff on my blog mm-hmm. um, in the in the free download section. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's if 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 people want it, take it. It's free. I mean, I'm I'm not going to pay them any more money. And that's why I'm systematically removing the OGL from my books. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm paying the money to have it in there, but as a as a statement. Um, you know, a you don't need it. It is it is not required uh, to to have that license in there um, for something that doesn't isn't a restatement of their material. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's one thing if you're doing a retro clone where you know you're using their combat system and their races and everything. That's then you you probably want to use what they did. You know, I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. Hmm. Um, but you know. Now that they have released everything into Creative Commons, um, there's no earthly reason that I can see to use the license because the license is actually more restrictive because it's, uh, and I know people vehemently disagree with me on that because, you know, they say that there's something about, you know, oh, you you can't be sued if you use the license. Well, that's not true at all. They could just (laughs) shut you down. You you just got a 30-day grace period, so. Mm -hmm. To to answer uh, DM Bloodworth in in chat here, uh, which you know, welcome DM Bloodworth. It's been a while since I've I've seen you on here. I'm I'm glad you're joining us this evening. Um, VTT will not be ready until 2025. Otherwise, they will launch it full of bugs. Here's the thing: uh, just based on the way the video game market works, uh, launching full of bugs is not an issue for way too many companies. There are video games that launch in such like a, a catastrophic state that you wonder how anyone is even employed in QA at all at any of these companies. But they just because you can patch games now, that's what they do. They launch the game when they, I guess, need the influx of cash. And then they're just like, well, we'll fix all the problems later with patches. You know, we'll patch it. The patches are free. Just as long as we get this money right now from you people, that's all that matters to us. It doesn't matter if we our product looks bad on launch because we'll fix it eventually. Well, especially because they're they're going to be using a, subscri- a subscription model. Yeah. So from their standpoint, you know, yeah, you, you'll you'll keep paying your ten bucks a month for the next year. We'll get one hundred twenty bucks, and then you'll get your you know the real game. Mm-hmm. You know, I work in IT, and I know firsthand. I'm a project manager. I'm an IT project mm-hmm. manager, and I know firsthand how long it takes to develop software, or or even to implement software uh, that's already been developed. And they're dreaming. If they've if they only started last year, they're they're <laughs> dreaming mm-hmm. on, on getting this out next year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Calveroni, wonder what's coming in 2024 for the 50th anniversary. Uh, Radiant Citadel Two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Well, 2024 is also the 10th anniversary of Castle Mount Archmage, and there will be a special edition for that. I, awesome. can, I can announce it here first. That's an anniversary worth celebrating. So <laughs> now, uh, w- while we're on the subject of kind of uh, leaving Watsy behind, I'm going to go back to a, a question that Brian James left us earlier. Uh, what RPGs do you prefer other than 
uh, first edition D and D or AD and D. Right now, that's pretty much all. Um, okay. And I, but I in 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 that definition, I include things like Swords and Wizardry, Advanced, and Labyrinth Lord, Advanced, and and that kind of thing. Um, to me, they're all one big blob and and something that's written for labyrinth lord will work just fine with ad and d and something that's written for uh osric will work fine you know they're Mm -hmm. the mechanical differences in the vast majority of those games that are based either on uh, ad and d or basic are are 99 interchangeable and i just treat them all as one i mean when i was back in this in the 80s we would take the combat system from claw law and arms law the magic system from call of cthulhu and the character uh the character system from the player's handbook and we would still just call it D. Mm-hmm. it's just the way it worked yeah. um and that's the way that's the same attitude i have today it's, it's all just D to me mm-hmm. but i don't yeah. but in terms of other more outre uh games um i play call of cthulhu sometimes um and i really enjoy it and uh, but other than that, I if, if I want to experiment with a game nowadays, it's going to be either a board game or a miniatures game, yeah. rather than a uh, an RPG. Hmm. Well, yeah, and I mean, it, RPGs. It, it's kind of like um, this is kind of like cigarettes in a way. You know, the brand you start with is the brand you smoke the rest of your life. So, <laughs> um, I, so I think for a lot of people. You know, you can kiss Watsy goodbye and still play D&D if you have all your old material. You know, you, you've hold, held on to it for a long time. You can play the, you know, the D&D that you know and love without ever having to give them a dime. Um, now, Legacy Game Mastering to shed out Castles and Crusades here, which is one of my favorites. So. Yeah, I, I we played Castles and Crusades when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to AD&D. It's <laughs> just, yeah. you know, I, part of it is I could I can actually run AD&D without a book if I need to. So yeah. I've got it so internalized. It's just mm-hmm. second nature. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and once you have a game that committed to memory, I mean, at, at that point, playing another game is just kind of for the novelty of let's see what this game does differently. Right. You know, and, and at that point, all you can do is write expansions for it. So (laughs) absolutely. And that's as good a point as any to transition. So I just want to show people here uh, before we go home this evening. uh, I I do want to point everyone to your blog here, which is greyhawkrognard.com. I dropped the link in chat already. I will do so again right now. Uh, but this is the uh, the home base of all things Greyhawk Grognard. So why don't you tell people what all they can find here, and uh, you know where all it will direct them. All right, up in the uh, up at the top there, there's a uh, link called Free Resources. That's where you will find a whole bunch of PDFs. Uh, there is 900 pages of fifth edition Greyhawk material uh, with uh, you know, classes and new spells and monsters and all kinds of good stuff. There is stuff on expansion uh, on expanding the uh, uh, the Flaness. Uh, so there's the stuff on the back, Lunish Basin. There are uh, finishing up those uh, articles that Gygax wrote about the you know goings on in the Flaness. Uh, there's Zahindia. There's a whole bunch of miscellaneous stuff in there. 
Um, also on the blog, you'll find a link to BRW Games, which is my publishing company. Uh, that's uh, the publisher of Adventures Dark and Deep, uh, which is a series of expansion uh, rule books for first edition, uh, as well as a couple of core books if you want to play it on its own. Uh, there is also a link to the uh, Greyhawk Rognard YouTube channel, which right now is my most active uh, vehicle for, uh, you know, for for getting my stuff out there. Um, I do a, uh, a regular Greyhawk video every Thursday. I do a quick um, uh, uh, adventure hook every Sunday, and I do other videos needed gotcha absolutely even adventure hooks from the hospital which <laughs> yes, I mean, is a I, level of dedication that i have not seen so far so. Well, it's funny because i at, on the way to the hospital i was worrying to my wife I was like i didn't do my video for, for sunday i gotta do my video for sunday and i was i was literally just sitting in the in the bed and i'm like i'm gonna do a video okay <laughs> I, it's not like I had anything else to do waiting for the nurses mm -hmm. to show up. So yeah, I did. I actually did a, did an adventure hook from the hospital bed. Um, but I really appreciate all the, all the, uh, the, the well wishes from folks who, who watched that. I, uh, right now, uh, the good news is I did not have a heart attack and, um, and, and everything seems fine. We're still, still doing follow-up tests, but I'm, I'm, I, I seem to be okay. Gotcha. And for those of you out there who are watching, who will be at North Texas RPG convention, uh, you will be there as a vendor as well. Yes, I, this is the first time I'm going to North Texas. Uh, I will be there as a vendor. I will be, um, that will be the showcase for my new book, Swords of Wuja, which is a first edition, Born Spine, um, expansion book for OSR games that is, that, uh, is kind of like Oriental Adventures, but it's based more on ancient China. So it's got um, hopping vampires and um, men and hungry ghosts. It's a mixture of Chinese mythology and uh, wuja movies, you know, so kung fu movies. It's got a yeah. kung fu system that uh, you with uh, with uh, other games and so forth. Um, it's kind of a redo of a, a book I did several years ago uh, called Golden Scroll of Justice. Um, this has about a third brand new material a third uh, completely reworked material because I removed the open game license. And a third of it is about the same as the, as gotcha. the old book. So it's definitely worth getting. It's premiering at the con. You will be able to get it there, and I will be happy to sign it there. Um, it will be available for sale on Drive-Thru RPG that same weekend. So uh, hmm. yay. And while we're talking about it, I just want to point out that my uh, my previous book, Swords of Cthulhu, um, is up for a Three Castles Award uh, at, at the con as well. So I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to coming in uh, a, a distant seventh on that, uh, but just being nominated is going to be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lou Alou is asking the important questions here. How much cash will I need for that beauty? The uh... Uh, this is thirty dollars, and it comes with a free PDF copy as well. Sweet. All right. Well, uh, you know, once again, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Um, and, and we'll have to do this again sometime because thanks for having me. I will be happy to come on at short notice whenever you need me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That, I feel like there's just so much more to discuss here that we didn't even get into. Uh, so at some well, point, we got we'll sidetracked on Transformers and GI Joe. So, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well guys, that is going to do it for rolling bones this evening, uh, to let you guys know what's coming up, uh, the, the rest of this month, uh, cause We've got something special.
plan for the rest of May. Uh, for the first time ever, we are going to have two shows in a row, two weeks in a row with the same guest. That guest will be Levi Combs of Planet X Games. This is the Planet X Invasion, and the Planet X Invasion Phase 1 will start next week with our discussion of non-fantasy influences on role-playing games. And then we will follow that up the following week, Tuesday the 23rd, by talking about the history of Arduin. So Levi is absolutely psyched about both of those topics. Uh, he will be on two weeks in a row. He'll be the first guest in Rollin' Bones history to do two shows two weeks in a row. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you guys are looking forward to that too. So until next time, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.